Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Frank, in your book, The Beauty of Dusk on Vision Lost and Found, you confronted a horror that I imagine a lot of people have when they think of fears, losing your ability to hear, losing your ability to see. One night to the next, you become someone who has a different perspective on life. Uh, you thought you could see, and then you probably, I'm imagining, took it for granted in some ways, as we all do, and then you wake up with blurry vision. Thank you for joining us, but you wrote this book. Why'd you write this book? You are somebody who's got a career You've done war correspondence. You've done movie criticism. You've done a lot of different things in newspapering. You wake up one day and your life has changed that moment, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I woke up one morning in October 2017 and I couldn't see correctly. Uh, and, you know, I thought I thought probably what any one of us would think, oh, there's just something in my eye. This is a temporary thing. An hour from now, it'll be fine. But it was the beginning of, of quite a convoluted medical odyssey. And, you know, within a week, I was told that I would never see correctly out of my right eye again and that the same thing could happen to my left eye and that I might go blind. And you were changed over how much time and how? Uh, I mean, I was changed profoundly over the ensuing, I would say, months and years. Um, when you're dealt that kind of unexpected blow um, and when that magnitude of uncertainty is injected into your life, you know, you have a lot of hard emotional and psychological work to do, you know, to get past the fear of what's going to happen, to get past any feelings of self-pity you might have. And so I'm, in a way that sounds a little bit too neatly metaphoric and cliched, um, I began to see the world in a different way. And I would argue that the kind of vision that matters much more than what's measured by an eye chart, that that vision of mine improved. I feel like I'm a much wiser, uh, more balanced, um, more capable in important ways person today than I was when I went to bed that night uh, that I had a stroke and that part of my vision was taken away. Oh, but that took years to realize. I imagine you went to Helen back with the pity. And it's interesting to hear someone as cynical as a newspaper columnist <laughs> uh, talk about the abstractions and the intangibles of I was so lost, but now I can see. I, I do worry that I sometimes sound like a greeting card or like a needlepoint pillow. Um, but, you know, and I write this in the book, you know, cliches are, are there for a reason. They're actually they're kissing cousins with verities. They're, they're down market analogs of insights. And um, I, I mean, it, it, it is the case. I'm a less cynical person today. I, I have learned something. It was a hard lesson, learned a hard way, you know, learned through, I mentioned an odyssey before, an odyssey that included clinical drug trials that included, you know, needles in the eye and a six month period where I gave myself injections in the thigh twice a week. 
I mean, so the lesson, the, the wisdom I gained to the extent I've gained it, I've, I've gained the hard way. Um, but I understand in a way I never did before how adaptable we all are as human beings, how resilient, how nimble. And when you see that through a personal experience, it makes everything in life a little bit less scary. It certainly makes aging less scary. And that's a big concern and theme of mine in the book. You answered some of this and it's a broad question, but what did you learn? I learned how adaptable we are, you know, as I mentioned, uh, how nimble. Um, I also learned because I opened my eyes and looked at everybody around me and everybody around them in a different way. I learned that struggle and hardship are kind of the default human conditions. We should all know that. Um, and if we pause and think hard enough, we do know that. But it's easy to ignore that if everything in your life is going reasonably well. But once you're dealt this kind of sudden crisis, this unexpected setback, you are forced to, or at least should, do a different kind of survey of the people in the world around you. And you realize, or you can realize, or at least I realize that, all, that just about everybody I knew had some sort of struggle, often an invisible one, had dealt with some sort of enormous disappointment, and yet had forged on, you know, uh, to some to varying degrees of success. Um, so I think that's a really important lesson um, that that the question why me is, is those are probably the two stupidest words in the English language, that the relevant question, the question that is consistent with the truth of our lives is why not me? I don't mean to be redundant, but what do you see now that you didn't see before? I see I see the struggle of people all around me and I see the perseverance of people all around me. I mean, that's what I see on a kind of soulful metaphoric level. But I also see and now I'm going to lapse back into greeting card or needlepoint pillow mode. Um, I just see how rich and how rich life is and how much beauty there is for the appreciation if you just do if you just if you just kind of pause and you know and you do that kind of cliche thing you stop and smell the flowers. I as I write about in the book and it's it's actually quite relevant to what I went through and how I got through it. Um, I took a dog into my life about a year, a year and a half after I lost vision in my right eye. And the greatest part of every one of my days and, and a part of every one of my days that makes me um, absurdly and wonderfully happy is just walking in the woods, you know, at the edge of my neighborhood with my dog and kind of hearing the creek, hear, hearing the the tinkle of the creek and and hearing the kind of whisper of the wind through the trees i mean that's that's stuff there's so much there's so much in our lives so many so many consolations and joys that are there for the taking but but again when things are going smoothly and right we don't notice those things and in fact we tend to dwell on on slights and 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 we tend to indulge grudges in uh, during those phases of life when we have reason for neither why didn't war correspondents offer you this wisdom well, my, my war correspondent stints were extremely brief and you're in and out, you know, um, and in fact, <laughs> my my one real stint of war corresponding, I'm not sure what the right uh, gerund or, or verb or whatever is there, um, was a sort of surreal one. I was embedded with the army for the first Persian Gulf War, and I was in the first wave of army vehicles that went from Saudi Arabia into Iraq, ostensibly to meet up with the Republican Guard. But if you remember that first Persian Gulf War, which was waged in response to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, um, the ground war lasted five days. Um, and so I was in a Bradley fighting vehicle with four soldiers for five days, 
We trundled through the Iraqi desert. We never saw battle, nothing happened. And then we were told that Iraq had surrendered and the war was over. Um, so even if it had been a different kind of, so that was my war correspondence. But I think even, even if it had been different, that's this thing that gets kind of compartmentalized. You go to a different country, a country that is more riven by conflict than ours. You come back to this country, different thing. Broader conversation then, because I do see that uh, all the numbers are up on unhappiness in young people. Addiction to social media has made it so that there are more suicides and many people are looking at lives on the Internet and saying, why is that life better than my life? What was it about your life as a newspaper person that didn't offer you the balance that allowed you to hear whispering wind on a creek in your woods behind your house in a way that there was time for? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think what it was about my life was that I really did not have any formidable challenges. And I think it is human nature. And a lot has been written about this. A lot has been written about how um, many of the kind of things we call culture wars in our country, they happen in our country or other countries when there's a certain level of affluence, when people's lives are reasonably stable. Um, I think when things are going well, there there is there is a human tendency, not in all humans, but in some humans to focus on what you don't have. Uh, you know, and 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 I did that to an extent. I was getting better and better at that because, and there's research on this, we do tend to get better at it as we get older. And interestingly, like mid 50s to mid 60s tend to be the happiest span of someone's life because they have made peace with what they have and haven't achieved. But I mean, I would get all worked up over the fact that my metabolism was slow and I gained weight so easily. You know, why me? I would get all worked up over the fact that, you know, I like to be outdoors and run and, you know, my sunscreen would would melt off and I would end up with a burn. Why did I have skin that burned? Why? I mean, I mean stupid, stupid stuff. Um, and I think it's the product of not having bigger things to worry about. I was, I will be very honest about this, in those ways, a spoiled brat. Have you had something more illuminating happen to you in your life than loss of sight? No, no. Well, I mean, I, I think that um, uh, my mother dying at a relatively early age by modern standards, 61, um, being there at the moment of her death, being very close to her, uh, and having conversations with her about death and being a resource for her over the many years she struggled with cancer, that was pretty illuminating. Um, that had happened, though, a good two decades prior to when the vision thing happened. And if I look at the years between, I mean, I had romantic relationships that flourished and then fizzled, um, you know, friendships that 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 exploded for various reasons. But those weren't in the category of of losing a parent in that fashion with that intimacy and or or in the category of being told I might go blind. I mean, I, I live with that threat right now. Doctors don't really know my condition. Uh, the people who have my condition uh, and I, it's rare what we have. And so there are as many questions as answers. But, you know, to the best of doctors estimations, um, I live with a 20 percent chance that my left eye will go and I'll be blind. And that's that's a profound thing to live with. And as jarring and with as many wisdoms as confronting mortality the way that you did with your mother? Um, I don't know. I mean, you can't compare these things um, in large measure because one is, I mean, one has happened to something, somebody else. One has happened to you, to you. I was 20 years older when this happened to me. I think I have... I think you do have certain tools of emotional maturity that allow you to process things that happen later on in life. Um, perhaps in a slightly more 
soulful and productive way than earlier. Um, so it really is in so many ways, apples and oranges. Is it difficult to explain to people that you are happier now because you are walking around with some of the wisdoms of appreciation because something was taken from you? Well, I mean, you, you could tell me, uh, I mean, in the sense that, um, when I when I explain it to you, does it make sense? Or and, and please be honest, or does it sound like some sort of happy dappy psychobabble? No, the reason I'm asking you the questions, uh, I don't know if the audience or how much of your story the audience has, but not just uh, confronting the mortality of losing someone you love, your mother, at an early age, but you're also the first openly gay op-ed columnist at the Times, uh, and that. That in and of itself presents an enormous number of challenges, enormous amount of identity, and um, to wake up one morning and have your worldview shifted by something that you probably hadn't considered a whole lot before that morning when you're talking about on this path, you're suffering things. As you get to wisdom <laughs> and older, you're you're absorbing every slight. And I don't know how happy you were during your formative years versus how happy you are now when you can stop for a moment, and whether it sounds cliched or not, feel the energy and soulfulness in in you know whisper, whispering winds in the woods. <laughs> um a lot of reactions to what you said, but um, one was you, you did remind me of something that was was another kind of profound challenge or part of my life, which is, was, whatever. I don't know what verb to put to it, being gay. Um, by the time I became uh, the Times' first openly gay op-ed columnist, which was, I think, 2011, I lose track of the chronology, um, the world had changed. And that wasn't a difficult position to be in. I mean, sure, do I get, like everybody gets nasty reader emails? Are there are there uh, terrible bigots out there who send me horrible emails? Sure, but those are easy to, those are easy to slough off. Um, but when I was 12, uh, and certainly knew by that point that I was a gay man. When I was when I was 15, when I was going off to college, that was uh, in the early and mid 80s. America and the world were, were very different places. And um, there was a great deal of fear um, in my life, in my head, in my heart about, you know, uh, what sort of discrimination would I face in the world? What sorts of opportunities would be unavailable to me? By the time I became a columnist at the Times, and as you said, the first openly gay columnist, my feeling about being gay was one more gratitude, the arc that this country had traveled, the amount of progress that had been made surprised uh, and relieved me. Um, what's interesting talking to you today is I think we're, we're in a moment now, I don't think we're gonna fall all the way backward, um, but we're in a moment right now where I think there have been like four steps forward and I'm seeing one step or two steps back. Uh, and that's very frustrating and scary. Um, because one of the great consolations I've taken from, you know, the world, from the country in my lifetime is how much more uh, accepting, hospitable, fair-minded, just the country had become and has become um, to people like me. Well, what happens there? Because I don't know what your appraisal is now of what seemed like progress, and it must have been great relief to you to be able to shrug your shoulders. The 12-year-old boy and you must never have thought possible. Shrug your shoulders. A first openly gay columnist at the New York Times. No, this is more acceptable, this circle. But the bubble of media, we have since learned, right, is not reflective of American society at large. And what's been peeled back over the last four years, fomented, really, and turned into and weaponized is, no, wait, 
if I hate people like Frank, I could use that as a platform. If I legislate oh, yeah. against Frank, uh, never mind that he feels supported. That support is false. We're gonna we're gonna repeal that support now, or 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 challenge the idea of equality at every turn. Not just you know taking away the bodily rights of women, but also making people like you feel again like other. Well, we are yes, that's absolutely true, and we are political pawns. You know. Um, uh, all the different groups that you kind of either uh, referenced or alluded to there, we're, we're going through a moment here where we are understanding anew or being reminded of what it is to be a political pawn. Um, you know, when it comes to gay stuff, though, it's not just a media bubble. bubble. What, what's so confusing and frustrating in part about um, elements of the conversation that surrounded the Florida bill that was just signed into law is, in fact, an overwhelming majority of Americans support uh, marriage equality, same-sex marriage, gay marriage, people put different labels on it. Um, an overwhelming majority of Americans um, think that gay and lesbian people should have uh, protections against discrimination in the workforce or in public housing. Um, so the fact that people are weaponizing positions opposite to that because opposition to that is so uh, works so well and brings out such fervor in a certain group and isn't, you know, and the issue isn't highest priority for its supporters. Um, it's one of the many ways in which we're going through a phase in our country right now where elements of minority rule prevail. And it's a very scary thing for the country because I think uh, I, I think you're seeing in various ways, and you know I don't I don't we probably don't want to get into this, but abortion is one. Of them. You're seeing you're seeing minority positions take political precedence because the people who have that position, who are in that minority with that position, um, bring more fervor uh, to their belief than people on the other side, and that's. That's a kind of recipe for democratic disaster, I think. As an op-ed columnist over the last, let's make it six or seven years, what are some of the things that have most surprised you? Because I've been talking about the racial disconnect in this country for 10 years, but I vastly, vastly underestimated it. So one of them, one of my observations here that has stunned me is that I can't believe that Donald Trump, of all people, was to take such a hatchet to the credibility of journalism, newspapers, the oh, New York yeah. Times. I just couldn't believe that. I thought it would take somebody who had more subtlety than that. And I did not think that people hated um, hated the press more than they feared all the things Donald Trump represents while hating the press with them. Yeah, we are. Uh, we in the media have made many, many, many mistakes over the years, over the decades. Um, we have many shortcomings and unfortunately sometimes with those shortcomings we pair an arrogance that we don't quite uh that, that we don't that isn't quite warranted all of that said i think we in the media uh do infinitely more good than harm and i trust that i don't have to go through a recitation of the reasons why a free press uh, and a muscular media is absolutely not just important, but essential to democracy. So it's been distressing to see um, the attacks on the media, which are politically convenient attacks, just like it's convenient politically to turn gay people like me into pawns. Um, what 
I don't know if surprise is the right word. What distresses me even more is the reality that transcends and that includes that, which is we live because of the Internet and because of social media. We live in an era where everybody gets to invent and curate their own truth. Everybody gets to set up their own information ecosystem um, to pick and choose so that the only facts or fictions that come at them are ones that perfectly validate whatever their worldview was or whatever they want it to be. Um, and so that already cliched phrase, post-truth era, that is the era we're living in. And I'm not sure how you sustain um, a, a democracy, how you have a democracy that flourishes if everybody's reality is different. How do you have common ground? How do you have compromise? How do you have political collaboration if you cannot even agree on a basic set of facts? And that's what the fracturing of media and information by the internet is doing to us. There's no fixing that, is there? That It's over now and you and me lose, correct? There's no going back and fixing all of the changes that have caused that erosion to a muscular media. Well, there's no easy fixing it. You know, I mean, there are big debates about whether we can have some sort of government um, oversight and regulation of, you know, entities like Facebook. I'm sorry, Meta. I can't get used to saying Meta, right? Um, those are really tough because if you begin to go down that road, where to where to regulate, where do sensible regulations end and a total attack on free speech begin? Right. Those are really that's a really, really tough line to draw. Um, one thing we can and should do, though, I mean, like immediately um, is we should build into our education system. The concept of media literacy uh, and in whatever other civics or government or history lessons uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers are getting, um, we should talk about responsible media consumption. We should talk about how to identify um, conspiracy theories from actual information. Um, we should make people conscious uh, of, of the decisions they're making consciously or unconsciously when they set up their information feeds. Maybe with, with a real educational push, um, we can make some headway here. We can hold the tide back a little bit or make it, a little, make it less destructive. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, 
and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. That's hopeful, but I would say to you that part of the issue, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is if you're going to live in a post-facts time and the media ends up being soft by trying to be responsible and objective and hold truth up as the shining light when some of what's required right now is a fight against a lack of education about facts. Like it requires the New York Times to, while it vets things and tries to be responsible and objective, it requires the New York Times to fight, to to dabble in activism, not just in the opinion pages, to fight, to not sit out some of this stuff. Because if the other side's not fighting fair, and newspapers aren't fighting. Who do you think is going to win the fight? I don't know. But if everybody if everybody takes a total pedal to the metal, all rules out the window, um, they're using a really sharp knife. I'm going to use an even sharper knife. Um, that's not going to get us anywhere either. Um, I have to believe or want to believe um, that a majority, it may, not, it may not be a big majority, but a majority of Americans understand this problem when they're not busy doing those things that they're understandably busy doing, you know, working so they can pay their mortgages, car payments, on and on and on. Um, when they take a moment and pull back, I believe they're concerned about this. And that concern has to represent some kind of opportunity um, to dial this down. Uh, you know, to, to to cool the temperature here. I don't know. We'll see. Um, we certainly we certainly can't just throw our hands up, shrug our shoulders, and say, "All right, we're all going to hell in a handbasket." You know, let's hope the pace is slow. That's no response. But you're asking to educate people, and some of what's happening here is uh, trafficking in a a lack of education because some of this is sent toward the uneducated purposefully and then beyond that frank i think you find yourself and we find ourselves in a in a position that you say i don't have to enumerate do i why a free press or a muscular press is important do i and my response is yeah, I think you kind of do, because the people you're fighting against don't agree with you or don't really understand what you're saying there, where we're all in agreement that it's important to have checks and balances. Right. And my response to you is, are we? Well, I meant I meant uh, it's a great point. I meant I don't need to enumerate it to you, but you're right. We're talking not just to each other. We're talking to listeners. My guess is people listening to your show um, have activated enough intellects that we probably don't need to enumerate it for them. But but you are right. We do need to enumerate it um, in a wider way. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about that could be integrated into education systems or that should be. Um, I This is not an example of how you'd integrate it because it's an example from from an elite college. But I mean, I, t I teach at Duke University now. I just finished uh, a semester in which one of the courses I taught was a, a sort of media dynamics and 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 uh, media ethics course. Um, and we began looking at a high watermark for media trust and media credibility. And that was the 70s. Uh, and the media is reporting around the Pentagon Papers and around Watergate. Um, and those those incidents represent beautifully why a free press and why a vigorous media is so important. We we needed to know as, as a citizenry, we needed to know that President Nixon and the people around him were breaking the law 
in the service of a continued grip on political power. We needed to know um, that our government officials were laundering the reality of what was happening in Vietnam and telling us false rosy tales of progress where progress didn't exist, because without knowing that, we continue to send young men to their deaths. So right there, great lesson in why a free press, a vigorous media is absolutely essential to democracy and to our well-being and our national security. What are you hoping to get taught in that class at Duke that reaches young people? Well, I mean, I had 30, some of my 30 young people in that class. Like I said, they're probably not the people who most needed the lessons. What do I want them to learn? I, you know, in that class, I wanted them to see examples of the media operating at peak, uh, peak importance, peak efficiency, peak credibility. Um, we also talked in that class about, uh, about where the media has gone wrong. But what I'm confident everybody in that class left with, um, probably not everything I wanted them to leave with, I think they left as much, much more conscious consumers of media. My guess is their media consumption habits will be better in the future. My guess is their conversations with the people around them um, about what the media, about the importance of the media and about how to integrate the media most effectively into a life dedicated to truth. My guess is those conversations will be more impassioned and more informed. And in that teeny, weeny, weeny, tiny way, uh, maybe I did an iota of good. What happened to that media credibility from the 70s? Well, that was actually the whole arc and uh, the whole trajectory of the course was looking at how did we get from, you know, 75 percent. I'm making these numbers up, but they're not far off, but I don't have them memorized. But how did we get from something like 75 percent of Americans saying they trusted and respected journalists to like, you know, wherever we are now, which is, I think, below below 25 percent. What happened? Um, I mean, part of it is what we talked about before, the fracturing of the news environment, so that when you ask people about the media, they, they can be thinking about a million different things and they're not thinking about the media they're consuming. They're thinking about all this other media that other people consume. But also what happened, the Iraq war happened, right? Um, the media uh, was quite gullible in its absorption of the narrative coming from the Bush White House um, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destru destruction that we needed to invade Iraq. Uh, in retrospect, um, you could still have a conversation about whether invading Iraq was was a good idea or a bad idea, but you can't have a conversation saying that we were told accurate information, that the media reported accurate information about the situation in Iraq. That happened. There were horrible plagiarism scandals that got great attention um, that showed people that reporters could be as, um, uh, as immoral um, and as uh, gratuitously ambitious as anybody else. That happened. Um, I mean, there are any number of things that you can trace that happened that led to this moment. I remember the feeling sweeping through me after the Iraq war announcements and then coverage. And the media at that point was soaked in so much fear after 9-11. I remember watching my television and thinking to myself, oh, my God, this utopian media thing that I imagined in my head that I learned in schooling. It ain't real. These people are just cheerleading for nonsense on television because they're scared and they're patriotic and they've wrapped themselves in the flag. I remember at that moment, I don't know. Um, you know, where you would rank it in terms of media credibility hits. But I remember feeling that and I'm somebody who's predisposed to the biases of wanting to believe in the utopian ideals of what it is that we've been writing about for a long time. Yeah, no. And I, it's, I, I had um, uh, zooming into the class as a guest speaker. 
uh, a gentleman I've known for a long time who was the the bureau chief for the for the Night Ritter reporters. That was a big newspaper chain in the past. Like a lot of traditional media, it is it is no longer um, a big anything. But he was hit the Night Ritter bureau in Washington. Those papers affiliated with it were some of the few who were casting enormous doubt on the Bush administration narrative that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction that we needed to invade, blah, blah, blah. And he talked about how, so it's not just the media, I mean, the media kind of felt a lot of pressures, but he talked about how vilified they were by readers, the kind of hate mail and hate calls they would get, you are, you are not patriotic, you're undermining the US. There's something else that happened too, um, that the media fell prey to that eroded its credibility. And if you go back, if we're talking about the post-Watergate, post-Pentagon Papers era, go back to the to the Gary Hart camp, the, the, the campaign when Gary Hart was undone and um, the sensational titillating coverage of his private life. Then four the years Miami later- Herald, at, that, that was my newspaper, right, the Miami right, Herald getting right. in there and changing the way news was done because we had never seen- Staking out his, staking out his townhouse to see if a woman walked in or out. Um, and then four years later, look at the look at the coverage in the primaries of Bill Clinton's private life slash sex life. Um, you know, such a circus that it led to, uh, you know, the, the novel Primary Colors and the movie Primary Colors, which I had my class watch the movie Primary Colors. We, somewhere along the way, um, the line between entertainment and news got blurrier and blurrier. Um, the coverage of politics became more and more scandal driven and especially kind of sex driven. Um, this kind of this hunt to find some salacious detail from a politician's private life. That was not a good turn for the media. It was not a good turn for democracy. And it is something that has absolutely contributed to the erosion of media credibility. I like talking to authors who invest years of time and effort into arriving at expertise so that the audience could take away some bite-sized nuggets of wisdom from an authority or an expert. You have three New York Times bestsellers, the 2015 examination of the college admissions frenzy. What are the cliff notes that you can give my audience on the book, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be? Um, it's that's very easy. Where you go is not who you'll be. Uh, uh, takes the 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 widely held belief um, that getting into a school with a low acceptance rate, getting into the most exclusive school possible, um, is worth moving mountains and will change your life. It takes that that belief, uh, reframes it correctly as a myth, uh, and mounts and constructs an argument for why. Um, the way you use college is going to have much, much more bearing on your life um, than whether your college's acceptance rate was 7% or 70%. And how should one use college? One should, one should spend as much, if one comes from the kind of background where, where choosing and getting into a college was an all-consuming activity and conversation, one should spend just a quarter as much energy and time surveying the landscape of the college that you end up at figuring out all the things on that on that court in that course catalog and in terms of campus activities all the things that that environment offers you and one should should have 
the most ambitious plan, the most considered plan, and bring the most energy to, to ringing that opportunity for all it's worth. Um, meet the most dynamic professors, find appropriate mentors, um, fire up your, fill your brain with as many interesting ideas as you can. You're not gonna get those four or sometimes five or six years back. You know, they come and go like that. Do not be a passive participant in those years, be an active consumer and demand the most from them. What is the learning the listener could do if he or she were to read Born Round, The Secret History of a Full-Time Eater? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was my first memoir. I'm, I'm one of those I'm one of those one of those uh, people who actually like says, oh, my second memoir and feels feels correctly <laughs> like such a narcissist. Um, if I start talking about a third memoir, I'm going to stage an intervention. Um, born, born, born Round is 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 really um, about our complicated relationships with our bodies. Um, and it's about the fact that uh, that food is is food. If we have the right kind of relationship with it can be um, one of life's, it's not, if not life's greatest sources of delight, but it's a complicated relationship that we have with food. Um, and food can be a torment as well as a pleasure. And finally, The Beauty of Dusk on Vision Lost and Found, the book that is out now. We've covered some of the uh, ground here, obviously, but what is it that you, what do you, what do you want people to know beyond uh, what you are saying is, um, you know, some life affirming wisdoms that may be cliche, but you should stop for a moment and stop working and stop hiding your identity in things that lack balance and make sure that you enjoy the smallest of things because you do not know, like with your sight, how long you will have them. I know that there is very simple and profound wisdom in appreciation. I don't know that this book is anything more than homage to that, right? Because you've arrived yeah, at a place at, at a place in your life where you more fundamentally appreciate what you have instead of noticing what you don't have. Uh, but the beauty of dusk on vision lost and found the process of writing it and everything else, where, uh, where was the joy for you in it? Part of the joy in it, and and I, I mentioned this because we haven't talked about it, is we've made it sound like the book is about me, 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 and a lot of it is about me. Um, but what I hope makes the book special and what made it in large measure, measure such a joyful and rewarding experience for me um, is I went and talked to people already in my life and people who were entering my life and people whom I invited into my life who had been through um, serious crises, um, usually of a physical or medical nature, um, but sometimes just, you know, things like grief. Um, and I, I painted portraits of them, uh, of, of how that event transpired in their lives, but more importantly, um, how they figured out an aftermath, you know, how they dealt with it in a way um, that allowed them not to be undone by it and allowed them to flourish despite what had happened and to even integrate what had happened into a new kind of perspective and identity. And so the, those portraits are studded through the book. And in some ways, the book is almost the account of me um, charting a path from one person to the next. And I think the people around us hold and are able to offer us much more wisdom than we usually access. And that's something I think the book vividly shows and something that I think people should consider. If you had more intimate conversations with the people in your life, um, and if you kind of saw them more fully, 
you would learn more from them than you would learn more from them than you are learning, and that will be a great tool in your future. You mentioned narcissism. You mentioned multiple memoirs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, were you immune to suffering of others that diluted your empathy before you lost your sight? No, I was not. I was not. I was not immune. I, I just think I wasn't quite as acute, or whatever the right, you know. Um, and I wasn't Im immune in part. I mean, I wasn't immu immune in part because I was raised by good parents and uh, and by and, and raised in a family um, uh, of great generosity um, and great compassion. But also, you know, we mentioned before I grew up gay in an era when that was um, when that was a scary thing. Um, and I think if you are someone who has ever uh, uh, been in or felt like you were in a marginalized group, um, I think you are primed for empathy uh, in a special way. Um, because uh, when you see somebody who is feeling cast aside or who is feeling frightened about his or her, their place in society, you can identify with that a little bit more readily because you've been there in your own um, maybe subtler way, but you've been there nonetheless. Poor word choice by me because I shouldn't have said immune. I should have said diluted, but that's not entirely empathy <laughs> because you felt it, right? Because you felt marginalized. You you yourself has said there's something about what happened to you that made you all of a sudden be able to more clearly see the suffering of others. And I'm trying to see what that bridge is because you considered yourself compassionate and empathetic, but then something happened to you that changed the entirety of your worldview. I think, yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, it's good. Like, so what, what, what's the difference? It concentrated my empathy. It sharpened what awareness I had, and it just sort of turbocharged that interest in and ability to recognize hardship around me. Life is deeper and richer from there, is it not? It's almost a fluency in a different language when you can access, oh, wait a minute, I had a wall between me and being able to really connect with people because I wasn't deep, deep digging into their problems because I was too busy with my own life or I wasn't even seeing them. Well, I don't know if I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if all of those things are true, except I don't know that I had a wall. I would say I had a sort of, you know, not that tall picket fence that I would leap over on occasion. Um, and now uh, I just have open terrain. Frank, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. The name of the book, The Beauty of Dusk on Vision, Lost and Found. You can check out his work as well uh, in the New York Times and at Duke University. Uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate your time and efforts here. All right. Thank you. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.